Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun because it is with a guy who is a real expert on metabolism. And he's a pioneer at testing intermittent fasting in clinical settings. We have all kinds of information about intermittent fasting um, that's been out there. It's you know a core part of the Bulletproof diet, but it's it's been around in spiritual traditions for a very long time, but the clinical studies of it were lacking. And Jason Fung um, is the guy who has done a lot of that work. And he's worked on treating obesity and diabetes. He wrote the obesity code, the diabetes code. And today he's talking about one of the four big killers. You know, the things that you have to avoid if you want to live a long time. Cancer is one of the big four things that takes a lot of us out. His book is called The Cancer Code. It, I'm really excited for this interview. So, Jason, thank you for taking the time. Oh, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. I, I remember back uh, when I was heavy and I was, I tried the zone diet, I tried the Atkins diet, I tried all kinds of stuff. And I knew though, like I said, it was gospel. This is you know, late 90s, early 2000s. If you don't eat six times a day, I'll go into starvation mode. And someone suggested, you know, eating fewer meals. And I was like, oh God, I, I still remember it because it was a visceral response. It was like, <laughs> oh my God, I'll die. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't have died, but I would probably have gotten low blood sugar because I was pre-diabetic. And I certainly would have just been unable to think. And, and so for me, it was really kind of a scary idea um, that you could even consider fasting. And, you know, I would have never predicted that years later, I had a 24 hour fast. Oops, I guess I did that because I didn't have time for lunch. <laughs> like, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What do you say to people who have that same visceral response that I did? I'll tell you, I had the same visceral response. I remember thinking about fasting for the first time and I thought, wow that's such a bad idea, right? That was my <laughs> first reaction to this was probably 2012, right? I was like, what a bad idea. But then I actually thought, well, wait a second, you know, I see this all the time. I tell people to do this all the time. It's it's what exactly is bad about it. And that's where, you know, I, I was fortunate that I could go into and look at any of the papers that had written the physiology and it had been worked out, of course, years ago. I mean, all this stuff about fasting because, it's not something that I made up, obviously. They talked about it thousands of years ago. Um, but the, the, there was a lot of myths that had been built up around fasting to really make everybody, you and me included, uh, think it was just so bad for you. So it's something like uh, your blood sugars will go low, for example. And in fact, if you're on medications, that might be true. But assuming if you're, if you're not on medications, then your body actually works fine. I mean, that's how we survived as cave men and cave women who might or might not eat, right? Your body is going to be able to store away sugar. And if it, and so this is called glycogen in the liver, it stores mm -hmm. uh, the sugar. And if you run out of that, then your body's going to start using fat. So you know, that's, that's how it survives and then produces ketones for the brain. So it doesn't need as much glucose and so on. And that's sort of the basis of the ketogenic diet, which is very popular and so on. Other things like, oh, I won't be able to concentrate again. It simply wasn't true. Uh, because when you look at what happens to the body during fasting, in fact, the body doesn't shut down. It actually revs itself up. So it actually increases noradrenaline and increases growth hormone. So because you're in increasing your sort of fight or flight response, which is your sympathetic tone, you're actually more focused 
you're actually going to be able to concentrate better. So people talk about, you know, some of the, you know, um, you know, in animals, for example, if you have a big meal, like a lion who just eats, you're not really sharp. If you, or you eat a huge Thanksgiving meal, you're not like, you know, really looking to do some high level, you know, <laughs> mental stuff. You just want to sit down and watch some uh, football, right? But for animals, for example, you what you don't want to do is you don't want to face that hungry wolf because that hungry wolf is not falling down on the job. The hungry wolf is dialed in, zoned in, and ready to kill you. So the point is that when your body doesn't have energy, it doesn't eat, it's actually going to shift and start using the fuel that's carried on its own body but it doesn't decrease it. So you're changing fuel sources, but then you're increasing the amount of fuel that your body is using so that you can go out and hunt. So this is like a survival response. It's actually, you know, you have more energy. Uh, people sometimes have, you know, I remember one fellow, he came into the office and his wife was like, you know, before he was so slow, now I can't even keep up with him because he's got so much yeah. energy. He's just raring to go. And what you've done, of course, is you've liberated the energy that's carried in that body fat. So as you start to use that body fat, your body's like, whoa, there's like 500,000 calories of food energy stored in this body fat. Let's go use it. When you eat all the time, of course, you lock all that body fat away because you're not able to access it because you're eating, you're using the food, not your body fat. So that's what I mean by switching fuel sources. Your body, uh, when you're not eating, simply switches over to using your body's own stores of calories. It seems like if you're exposed to a lot of chemicals, uh, you're exposed to toxic metals, you're exposed to uh, xenoestrogens, including mold toxins, all of those are also independent risk factors for obesity and cancer. How do you sort out toxins versus diet if the toxins make you fat? Yeah, that there there is a bit of a. It's sometimes hard to tease it out, but uh, you know, there's there's uh, statistical ways that you can try to do that. It's not perfect, of course, but if you look at the overall sort of contribution of toxins, they tend to be relatively small because you're not going to get them. Um, so it's hard to get these toxins that are sort of worldwide sort of thing, right? Whereas obesity, you can track it. It, it sort of started, it didn't start, but it was the most, uh, biggest problem in America. And now you see it in Asia and so on. So you can track these things, um, as opposed to certain, say, um, toxins. So aflatoxin, for example, is a, yeah. is, is something that causes, um, and, and wood dust and other things. These all cause cancer, but you're not going to see sort of in all parts of the world as opposed to obesity. So you can try and distinguish between those two. But for sure, those are problems, for sure. We know it. And there's a list of carcinogens that the World Health Organization maintains. But when you look at in a population how much it contributes to cancer overall, it tends to be sort of like 1%, 2%, 3%, which together can be important, but obesity and diet and so on tend yeah. to be the biggest part. Un unquestionably. Um, do you know why um, coffee only causes cancer in California? <laughs> coffee is a, is, a, is a tough one. I mean, the problem, of <laughs> course, with these studies is that they typically uh, take coffee drinkers versus non-coffee drinkers. And then they say, okay, well, what's the difference between the two? And, and then try and make some conclusion. But this sort of stuff is very hard to, because there's a difference between coffee drinkers and non-coffee drinkers, other than the fact that the, the, 
one drinks coffee, some, you know, might be very under very high stress, for example, you know, real go-getters and other people might be much more laid back. And, you know, there's, there's so many differences between the two that it's often hard to distinguish whether it's just the coffee. I mean, the the same problem exists in all of them, all of nutrition to try and tease out these things is very difficult. So we actually went through a number of these hypotheses for diet. We thought maybe fiber was the problem. That didn't turn out to be the case. We thought it was fat. We thought it was various vitamin deficiencies. So we tried, uh, I'll tell you that they've tried, and these are million-dollar studies. So they've tried vitamin A, B, C, D, E, and they've tried uh, selenium, and they've tried um, uh, omega-3 fatty acids all you know tested the supplements and randomized controlled trials and of course none of them really had any effect on cancer well some of them did the vitamin b and c actually vitamin b ones actually tended to increase the rates of cancer so that wasn't good some of the more advanced biohacking techniques um in fact the guy who talked about this most was probably james clements when he came on the show Uh, he wrote a book called the switch which was was brilliant and he's like well go on a protein restricted diet for a month and eat less calories. <laughs> and uh, the next month, go on an mTOR month. So you're sort of going in this, break things down, clean them up, and then build them back. Clean them up, build them back as part of an anti-aging regimen. Because if you get sarcopenia, your muscle loss as you age, uh, which just normally happens with every decade, that also tends to, well, you don't get cancer necessarily, but you know, you're walking hunched over and you can see through your skin and that's not the type of aging that anyone wants either. Yeah. Do you think that there's validity to that kind of feast-famine, feast-famine strategy? I think it makes a lot of sense because what you want to do, and fasting, of course, does this naturally because when you fast, one, you're going to break down stuff because your body doesn't want extra cells, right? So you're going to go into autophagy, you're going to break down cells, you're going to get rid of extra cells. But then growth hormone goes up. So then when you do eat, you rebuild those cells that you need. So that's, that's essentially what you're doing is you're trying to cycle between sort of breaking down and then rebuilding, breaking down and then rebuilding, which is the way that you sort of rejuvenate the body, right? That's the whole word itself. You got to get rid of the old stuff, bring in the new stuff. If you keep pushing, you know, it's like if you renovate your bathroom, the first thing you got to do is take out those little tubs and old bath, uh, old toilets, because then you can put in new ones. You can't just put in a, a tub if you have an old tub there, right? So that's the problem. You really have to cycle between the two. And that's what this sort of natural, even on a daily basis, right? You mm-hmm. feed and then you fast. You feed and then you fast. That's why you have a term called breakfast. This breaks your fast, right? right? So that's the point. You're going to store some calories. You're going to build during those eight or 10 hours that you're eating. Then for the 12 or 14 hours that you're not eating, that's when you're going to use those calories and also break down whatever you don't need, right? Your grandmother might have said, you know, that's the time you need to digest your food and so on. But really, I think they're on to something in that this is a natural cycle. We, of course, you know, getting back to this idea of eating 10 times a day, completely destroyed that because, you know, instead of respecting the sort of feed and fast cycle, which, uh, you know, we've always had, right, built right into the English language, we said, feed all the time, right? And, you know, you heard this, uh, I'm sure, 10 years ago, like, as soon as you get up, eat breakfast, breakfast, most important meal of the day, like, do not even 
tap out your bedroom door before you get a granola bar. And you're like, why? Like, what possible reason would I have to do that? And keep eating until you go to bed. It's like, well, that's not the way way I grew up, right? You had dinner and that's it, right? So you have to have that fasting period. So it's the same thing on a mini scale, right? And I think what, what he's talking about is on a monthly scale. And I think that makes a lot of sense too. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. I feel like we could talk for eight hours and <laughs> and really kind of cover the basics of your book. It, it's a very complete <laughs> book, includes you know immunotherapy. And it is now the book that I'm going to be recommending for friends and people who reach out and say, you know, I, I just got cancer or cancer runs in my family and I'm worried. I'm like, okay, you, you have a book to read now. Um, and and that's a, a high bar, but I think you, you really, you're, you're very logical and it's very readable. So I, I have kind of two questions um, that I want to follow up uh, to end the interview with. And the first one, someone finds out, and unfortunately I can't tell you which kind, but, but someone finds out that they have a common kind of cancer and they just hung up the phone with their doctor. Without knowing much more, top three recommendations for people who, don't, or who are going to have to deal with their cancer. What are the three most important things they can do if they're playing the odds? Yeah, I mean, it's, so if you're talking about one of the obesity-related yeah. cancers, okay, so let's you have talk to look that. at the cause. Yeah, Because yeah. so, if you're a lung cancer, of course, then you Different. have to stop smoking. Like okay. clearly there's nothing else. Okay. Well, we'll say an but, obesity related cancer. Yeah. So like cancer. breast cancer, colorectal cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, those are obesity related cancers. So the, 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 the most important thing is to understand that you, you know, there's, there's, if you're overweight, then you need to sort of get back to a normal weight because again, that's a disease of too much insulin, both are okay. diseases, and then you have to get that down. So, Lose weight. Lose weight is probably the most important thing. Two is probably sugar. Sugar, you know, I don't think there, there's a lot of people that would disagree. Sugar plays a huge role in all of these diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't do it in, di- in a direct fashion, um, but it does it sort of in this indirect fashion. It causes a lot of liver fat accumulation and insulin resistance and therefore hyperinsulinemia. So it, it does this... And it's very insidious, and it's also um, it's hard for your ha- body to handle that much of the fructose, um, and that's the problem with the sugar. So cutting sugar is probably one of the you know big things. So trying to lose weight, trying to get down. Um, you know, if you have type two diabetes, then there are certain drugs that might make things better, and certain drugs that might make things worse. So insulin, of course, would not be something that would recommend, but trying to control your sugars through your diet. And there's also certain medications that you can. Those would be the the, the main things. I mean, okay. they're not they're you know they're common sense. They're 
logical. I mean, in terms of treatment, you know, you still got to follow whatever the oncologist recommends as the best treatment regimen, because by the time you get to that stage of cancer, I mean, we spent like millions and millions of dollars trying to figure out the right regimen. And I'm not going to say, you know, they're all wrong, right? It's, it's, it's the, the regimens that they recommend have been tested. So you do need to take that advice, but there are ways to improve your odds. So getting to a normal weight, cutting down sugar, potentially uh, considering metformin and intermittent fasting has other roles. So one of the roles is in chemotherapy it, it actually, they've used it sort of before chemotherapy. It makes it more tolerable and perhaps also makes it more effective. And that's, you know, so they fast 24 hours before. And the idea here is that what you do is by fasting, you're putting your cells into this sort of regenerative mode so that when you get the chemotherapy, you don't sustain as much of the toxic damage that, that accumulates Whereas the cancer, the cancer can never really go into this regenerative static mode. It's always sort of growing and therefore it gets the full brunt of that chemotherapy. So they've used it in small studies where they've used fasting sort of before and after chemotherapy. And they found that a lot of people can tolerate it better. So these are sort of, you know, metformin fasting. These are ways to sort of optimize around the treatments that are available. Do you have enough time to talk briefly about metformin? Some new studies that I wanted to to chat about. You're good for another couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. So metformin is really interesting because, again, it plays on a hormone called AMPK, which is, again, one of these nutrient sensors. And the nutrient uh, sensor, it sort of fools your body into thinking that there's no nutrients available and therefore, you know, cutting growth down. So in uh, diabetics, the metformin uh, seems to reduce the risk of certain types of cancer, breast cancer particularly. And therefore, some people have started to use it sort of outside of the diabetic realm. And you see that in a lot of longevity, uh, people will consider using metformin or some of the related compounds to metformin. Um, in an effort. The, the, the proof is still to come, I think. I mean, I don't think there's any good studies. But, you know, on the other hand, it's a relatively non-toxic drug, relatively, because all drugs do have side effects. But you've been using it for 50, 60 years, and, you know, it's, it's yeah. been well, well tolerated. We know a lot about this drug. I, I went on metformin when the first anti-aging studies came out, um, early 2000-ish, uh, for about three years. But... I ended up going off of it uh, because of some early studies about a reduction in mitochondrial function. And just like four days <laughs> or maybe six days before recording this, a new study uh, came out that showed that it was exacerbating age-associated mitochondrial dysfunction and caused a failure of cellular respiration because of what it does to complex one in the mitochondria. And so I've that plus the vitamin B12, the reduction in sensitivity, I've been reluctant to recommend it as much as I used to uh, be, for healthy people. But the idea of reducing your type 2 diabetes is so much more overwhelmingly important than that side effect. But if we're looking at a healthy population, that may be one to hold off on for a little while based on that, I think. Yeah. Do you agree? I agree. I've never, okay. I've never recommended it to healthy people, although I know certain other doctors who have done that. So um, I think that the benefits, again, it's, it's, it's one of these risk benefit 
things. If you have type 2 diabetes and your option is metformin and insulin, then clearly, you know, metformin Duh. does better than insulin. <laughs> Okay. But if you're healthy, then what are your benefits? Well, they're fairly murky, and um, so therefore any side effects are going to start to balance because your risk is just so much lower right. in a healthy population. And the other thing is that it's, uh, these drugs, um, you know, they might be good for a certain period of time yeah. and not be good if you do it continuously. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of drugs that have been like that, right? If you take it, it's good. You take it, it's good. Then you, when you study, oh, you've been taking it for 10 years and it's really bad for you, right? Um, so some of the uh, osteoporosis drugs were like that. They were good. They're good. They're good. And then, but if you took it for a long time, you've got more fractures actually. So there's sort of a time limit to those because they're interfering with sort of the natural thing. So if you're, you know, so if you're chronically stimulating the, or simulating this sort of state of semi-starvation, it might be good for a while, but you're not getting the normal growth that you should be getting, right? So therefore, yeah. maybe in maybe you do have to cycle these. Maybe you do have to say take it for this and then go off of it and this and that. There's different ways, but okay. you know, without the studies, it would be hard to know how to recommend it. So I've never really recommended it for healthy people. Um, I, I think your your conservatism was probably warranted there. And I've, I've considered, I probably will experiment with taking a metformin on a day when I'm going to do a 24-hour fast. So I'll turn up the effect of the fast, but the rest of the time I wouldn't take it. Stuff like that. There's all yeah. kinds of stuff, and we may never do studies on that. But if we know enough about how it works and you see outsized results, you can probably say, okay, this is a healthy practice for me, but it may never be provable. But if you look half the age of your friends, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I think these things are relatively low risk too. When you start to, when you cycle these things, of course, you're going to be a lot less prone to getting into problems. Like if you cycle, say, veganism, you're going to be less prone to getting yeah. into trouble. Like if you yeah. eat eggs every so often or fish every so often, you're going to be a lot less prone to getting into trouble than if you're hardcore, hundred percent. I, was, I yeah. eat zero eggs and fish and meat and everything. Right? You could get into a lot of trouble with that. Same for everything, right? Hardcore keto, people worry about that. Oh, hardcore yeah. um, carnivore, people worry about that. And 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 some of these diets haven't been around long enough to uh, to to really know what the long term side effects are. But you know, it's it's it seems like you do have like there, there's reasons that you'd have to think twice about doing them hardcore all the time whereas if you're just sort of cycling in and out trying to get the results targeting them to what you want like if you have a specific problem i want to lose weight right let's target that let's get to there right and, and then and then getting there and then trying to maintenance those sort of things it seems okay. like you're going to run into a lot less trouble in the long term well i i love your reasoned rational thought process about cancer, about fasting. Uh, you know, you're, you don't jump on the bandwagon too soon, but you're way ahead of the curve. Uh, and, and you're so willing to say, we don't know, <laughs> but it, you're, you're also the rare doctor who's willing to say, we don't know, but the most rational thing that makes sense, given what we do know is probably this. And we'll, yeah. we'll see more studies. That's a very rare thing for anyone with a license. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thanks for the, you know, uh, about the cancer code, because that really was I, what, what was I was trying to do is write a book for somebody who sort of all of a sudden finds out, oh, I have cancer. Like, what am I going to read? Like, how do I know more about this? Like, what's happening in my body? 
Like, cause sometimes you get out there and you read and it's like, there's nothing, nobody's talking about it. Like, what is it as a disease? Like that's, that was such an interesting question to me is what this disease actually is and how our thinking about it has completely changed in the last 10 years. And then people will say, hey, this is an interesting sort of thing. It doesn't change perhaps what the treatment is because you're still going to do mostly what the doctor tells you to do. But at least you have an inkling of what's going on in your body so that you're not just sort of out, you know, dealing with the complete unknown. So, yeah, thank, thanks for that. I really appreciate that. Uh, you're, you're welcome. You've, you've done an active service, and I, I like to tell listeners this. No one who knows what they're doing writes books for money. <laughs> <laughs> like, it takes so many thousands of hours, and like, you pour your soul into a book. And yes, you yeah. do get paid for the book. You do not get paid as much as you do practicing medicine or being an entrepreneur. Like I, I write my books as acts of service and acts of learning. And I can tell from reading your book that you were putting the the pieces in order for yourself as you were doing it so that you could be better at teaching it. So it is a book that I, I mean that it is on my shelf and it's like, you need to read that if cancer is your four killers. You know, there's, there's four. Diabetes is the first one because it, it makes the other three more likely. But cancer is the biggest one right up there with cardiovascular disease. They kind of race depending on Absolutely, number one and two. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you wrote I, the book. So here's what you do. <laughs> yeah. I hear you about the writing because it's like you write not because you want to. You write because you have to. Because <laughs> like, it just ain't worth it otherwise, right? Because sometimes you get these people that say, oh, you wrote it for the money. I'm like, if I was doing it for the money, I'm telling you I could have done a lot. A lot of other things I would have done a lot better than that. You write it because, and, and I, I, you know, I totally hear you on that because it's like, I, I remember I finished the book, I finished the diabetes code, and then I started reading up on cancer because I found it like, like, honestly, I thought the whole scientific journey was just a fascinating story. And it's like, oh, I have to write this. And so you see, you have it on your chest, you have to get it off your chest. Yeah. And then it's like, ah, okay, I've said what I have to say, right? You don't write it because, oh, I need to write a book. I need to make money. You like, you do something else for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. You you do something else for that, but uh, um, it's well done. And and for for people listening, look, if you decide you're going to read the cancer code, if you have cancer in your genes and in your family, and you know your mother and father got it, and your your siblings did you might want to read this book. <laughs> and if you have cancer or you've had cancer, which means you have a greater chance of it coming back, you might want to read this book. And one thing you absolutely have to do, and this is funny, but it's actually proven to reduce cancer, and it's leave a positive review when you read a book that's worthy of a positive review. And the reason <laughs> that reduces cancer, and I'm not joking about that, is that gratitude in multiple studies reduces inflammation in the body. And it's the least you can do. If you tip your barista, you also should leave a review for your authors. It doesn't take very long. <laughs> on that <laughs> note, <laughs> thanks, Jason, for being a continued voice of curiosity and reason in the bizarre world of health and medicine. You're, you're doing a fantastic <laughs> job. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. This is great. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.